As we continue to worship together, I'd like you to take your Bibles and join me in Luke chapter 19. While you're turning to Luke, let me encourage you to remember that we are giving our attention now to God's very Word. Never forget that, that the Bible in front of you is the enduring testimony of God's love for the lost and God's pursuit of the rebellious and the wandering. The specific passage that we're going to look at this morning is Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. I'd invite you now to follow along as I read. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities." Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Will you pray with me once again? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Help us see him, know him, love him, and lean upon him. Send your spirit to comfort and convict us. Interest us once again in the saving work of Christ, O God. Strengthen our singular trust in the finished work of Christ. Move us toward faithful service in the kingdom of Christ. We pray all this for your glory and the eternal good of your people, O God. 
Amen. As we begin together, let, let me take just a moment to say this. We miss you. I miss you. I miss the singing and the laughter and the tears and the life that typically fill this room. I miss hugging Jim Kreider every single week and shaking McKeever Thomas's hand. I miss seeing Mark and Jen Dodd sit right down here on the front row. I miss seeing my wife hold Elsie Lynn Snipes during a congregational hymn. I miss making faces at Branton and Maggie Huss from across the room. As the pastor of youth and families, I really miss our middle school and high school students. Many of you know that our students typically spend a lot of time together here at the church. We have Sunday school and youth group and a weekly family time we call D-groups together. We also take our students on uh, retreats and trips on a regular basis. As I prepared for the sermon this week, my mind went back to the many road trips that our groups have taken to Ridgehaven in Brevard. We typically get to Ridgehaven by taking Highway 178 from Liberty all the way just shy of Rosman, North Carolina. A few miles before we turn onto Old Toxaway Road, we pass a large green road sign that reads Eastern Continental Divide. The sign marks a division or a watershed. All the water to the east of that sign flows toward the Atlantic Ocean. All the water to the west flows to the Mississippi River and eventually to the Gulf of Mexico. Think about it this way. The destiny of any particular drop of water is determined by its relationship to that dividing line. As we turn our attention to yet another parable in Luke's gospel, we need to realize right from the outset that all, all humanity will be divided or separated based upon one's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the words of William Hendrickson, Jesus is history's watershed. It's dividing ridge. Our relationship to him is decisive for woe or weal, bane or blessing. In reality, this theme of division is one that Jesus has revisited time and time again during his earthly ministry. This parable of the ten minas closely parallels Jesus' teaching on the wheat and the weeds, the good fish and the bad fish, and the sheep and the goats. In this particular parable here in Luke 19, we're introduced to a certain nobleman, his servants and his citizens. This is a multifaceted, densely packed story. So for the sake of time, let me just offer you something of a quick overview or summary as we really begin. We know that Jesus is currently on his way to Jerusalem. According to verse 11, he is in fact drawing near to the city. At this particular time, many believe that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to enter Jerusalem and, and bring about the liberation of the Jewish nation. To use Luke's words, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
Jesus tells this parable to clarify for his followers what he's actually coming to do. He's not going to Jerusalem to bring about the desired political revolution. Remember Jesus' recent prophecy from Luke 18. Hear it again. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So so Jesus is the nobleman king in this story. He is going to Jerusalem to die, rise, and ascend into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. We know from experience that there is a sizable space of time between the inauguration of Christ's kingdom and the consummation of that kingdom. During this time, Jesus orders his followers, the servants, to spread and grow the kingdom using their God-given resources, the minus. At the appointed time, the king will return to judge the labors of his servants and all the peoples of the earth. Now again, this is a packed, packed parable. It's technically a prophecy that touches on the nature of salvation, the makeup and purpose of the church, the end times, and the final judgment. You've probably already noticed, though, that the majority of this parable addresses Jesus' evaluation of three different people groups. To that end, we're going to spend our time today looking at these three groups. The active servants of the king, the idle servants of the king, and the defiant citizens of the king. Let's first give our attention to the active servants of the king. Look with me again at verses 12 and 13. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. The nobleman in this parable, as we've already said, is traveling far away to receive his kingdom. Now, this was actually a common occurrence in the first century. Individuals would travel to Rome to be rightfully and officially crowned as sovereigns over their particular kingdoms. While this nobleman is away, the servants are given a job to do. The nobleman gives each servant a mina the equivalent of three to four months of wages for a a farmer in that culture. He then demands, and the emphasis there is very important, he demands that his servants engage in business until his return. The nobleman lays down a clear expectation. All of his servants are to actively trade and conduct business with the money entrusted to them. As stewards, they are meant to grow the investment. They are supposed to extend the influence and power and wealth of the nobleman. After a certain period of time, the nobleman returns as a crowned king and calls his servants to give an account. Listen to verses 16 through 18 once more. The first servant came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little You shall have authority over ten cities. 
And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. These first two men are clearly active servants. They've obeyed the king's command. They've faithfully submitted to the will of the king with humility and diligence. And don't miss their actual responses. Lord, your mina has made ten or five more. Their posture is not, Lord, I've done everything that I could. And through my hard work and my individual independent effort, it has increased. No, no. It's, Lord, your resources have abundantly multiplied themselves while under my care. How does the king respond to these two active servants? He he praises them and calls them good. He gives out amazing, disproportionate rewards, authority over entire cities. Think about it this way. A person entrusts you with $10,000. Over time, you see that investment grow to $100,000. And when the person returns to inspect your work, he or she tells you that you are now going to be given full authority over Clemson and Seneca, Easley, Wahala, Pickens, Westminster, Anderson, Greer, Spartanburg, and Greenville. <laughs> we are supposed to realize that the king here in this parable is both wildly powerful and remarkably generous. He is strong and gracious. He celebrates the faithfulness of his people. He rejoices in the extension of his kingdom. You know why these first two men actively and obediently worked for the king? Because they understood, by God's grace, their place and the king's character. You see, servants serve particularly when they know their master to be both great and good. Think of some of our most beloved characters from literature. Reepicheep in the Chronicles of Narnia, Hagrid in Harry Potter, and Sam in The Lord of the Rings. Theirs is the role of simple, faithful, diligent servants who work for the good of one greater than themselves. Remember, Jesus is the nobleman in this parable. Jesus is the Messiah and the great promised king who is now ascended into the far country of heaven. He has entrusted his people not with minus, but with the good news of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us to take that same saving gospel to to our families, to our neighbors, to our communities, and yes, to the very ends of the earth. And our motivation for service, brothers and sisters, it's not fear or guilt or, or desire to work up God's approval. Our motivation is one of joy and gratitude because we know the King and His work. Jesus is a powerful and generous ruler who has given up his very life 
for our good. One who will come again to richly reward his people. That we might live to hear him say, well done, good servant. Now, uh, let me take a, a little rabbit trail with you here. When we think about faithfully serving the kingdom of God, we need to be careful. You see, you and I live in a world that worships the sensational and the spectacular. Our culture is consumed by the blockbuster and the bestseller and the viral story. As a result, we can think that real Christian service must look like Hudson Taylor's missionary work in China or Jim Elliott's martyrdom in Ecuador. Now, please know, I am not here today to tarnish their sacrificial efforts in any way. Their lives have been memorialized and remembered for good reason. But let us recognize that serving King Jesus is rarely flashy or memorable. It's a daily, moment-by-moment endeavor. You know who's actively serving the kingdom of Christ? It's the single adult buying groceries and preparing meals for his elderly friend. It's the single mom working hard to provide for the physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being of her children. It's the 75-year-old man teaching a young husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church. It's the college student changing diapers in the nursery. It's the high school freshman volunteering in Teach Me to Worship. It's the manager leading a Bible study for her employees at 6.30 in the morning. It's the retiree mowing his neighbor's grass. Faithful servants are the common people of God moving out toward the world in truth and grace with joy and thanksgiving all for the glory of the King day after day. Michael Horton says it this way, Taking a summer to build wells in Africa is for some a genuine calling. But so is fixing a neighbor's plumbing, feeding one's family, and sharing in the burdens and joys of a local church. What we are called to do every day, right where God has placed us, is rich and rewarding. As this parable continues, we we meet another servant altogether different from the first two. Let's continue then by looking at the idle servant of the king. In verse 20, a third man approaches the nobleman. He tells his master that the mina has been safely laid away in a handkerchief for the duration of the nobleman's absence. On a first reading, the, the servant's behavior seems somewhat understandable. He is afraid of the nobleman king because the king is evidently a severe, exacting, and harsh man. In reality, the the third servant views the nobleman as a bully or even as a kind of thief. Verse 21, "You, you take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. But there are some real problems here. First, 
This servant has a wildly distorted and incomplete view of the king's character. The king is powerful, no doubt, but but he is not abusive, unjust, or unfair. The king possesses a rightful authority over his kingdom and all over all the people and all the resources that are in it. Second, this servant has been disobedient. The king gave his servants a command. Engage in business until I come is is not a suggestion or a possible course of action. It is an edict and a decree. We might be tempted to excuse the third servant's behavior as folly, but it's actually insubordination. Third, hiding the mina in a handkerchief was just an irrational move. In verses 22 and 23, the the king actually calls the servant's bluff. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Here's the king's logic. If you were really afraid of me, servant, then you would have obeyed my command in the safest and smartest way possible. You would have placed the mina on the banker's table and drawn interest during my absence. I would argue that the third servant is actually not afraid. He's lazy and ultimately disinterested in the work of the kingdom. In reality, this man is not a servant at all. He's a fake. Look at the reaction of the king in verse 22. I will condemn you with your words, you wicked servant. At the end of the parable, the king strips the idle servant of his mina and gives it to the one who has worked faithfully. This false, wicked man meets condemnation. The similar parable of the talents in Matthew's gospel ends this way. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A few years ago, one of our congregants invited me to join him at a tower shoot in Anderson. Now, before I made my way to the actual event, I was ushered into a large freestanding building. In this building, and remember, I am in Anderson, South Carolina, there were wolves and deer and antelope of every kind, a wildebeest, I I believe that there was a moose, and there was a very large brown bear. And yet, I was perfectly safe. You know why? Because they were all stuffed. (laughs) It was a room full of taxidermy. The deer couldn't run, the wolf couldn't howl, and the bear couldn't maul you and leave you for dead in the Alaskan wilderness. A stuffed animal is not a real animal. It may look the part, but it's just a carefully constructed ruse. It's not actually good for anything. So who are the wicked servants in this parable? Well, let me ask you, is there a group of people with full access to the gospel who yet remain distant from the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Are there individuals who spend their entire lives around the true servants of the king and yet meet condemnation at the end of all things? Idle servants of the king are Christians in name only. They may be covenant children, lifelong churchgoers, and well-respected members of the community. But ultimately, their words, their interests, and their lives showcase a gross misunderstanding of God's character and no actual interest in the saving work of God. Remember James 2.26, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Or the words of Matthew Henry, We are too apt to rest in a bare profession of faith and to think that this will save us. It is a cheap and easy religion to say, We believe the articles of the Christian faith, but it is a great delusion to imagine that this is enough to bring us to heaven. Those who argue thus wrong God and put a cheat upon their own souls. You may as soon take pleasure in a dead body, void of soul or sense or action, as God take pleasure in a dead faith where there are no works. Today, if your heart finds no joy in the living person of King Jesus, if your hands are completely idle in the work of the kingdom, If your thoughts turn only toward your own interests, time and time and time again, then know that today is the day to repent and believe the gospel. Before we bring things to a close, there's one final group of people in this parable that we need to discuss and understand together. Let's consider then the defiant citizens of the king. You may have noticed that we've actually skipped over verse 14 to this point. Will you actually, will you read it with me again? But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. These citizens are overtly and intentionally rebellious. The nobleman takes his journey and and the citizens do what? They send a delegation after him. They're lodging an official complaint against his rule and reign. They don't like the king. They don't want the king. And the text out and out tells us that the citizens hated him. If you stop and think about this for just a moment, then you'll realize that Jesus has been telling a really tight story in this parable. What does he do with the active servants? Well, he introduces them, he explains their behavior, and he shares the consequences. What about the idle servant? Introduction, explanation, consequence. And what happens here with the citizens? Well, verse 15 provides us with an introduction and an explanation of their behavior. Verse 27 gives us the consequence or result. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The king doesn't beat around the bush. 
The defiant citizens are his enemies, and they will be destroyed as such. The call to worship that Chris read earlier was was actually chosen very intentionally. I want you to listen to it again. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name and the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, at this point, we may actually be inclined to agree with the idle servant. Perhaps this king is a severe and an unfair man after all. Slaughter? Striking down the nations? A rod of iron? The wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty? These are powerful, heavy, and even shocking images. But take care. Because you see, we must never interpret the holiness of the king as harsh. Jesus' destruction of the wicked on the last day is justice. Not some kind of heavy-handed, vindictive severity. Remember, King Jesus came in humility to die in the place of sinners. He came to take the full wrath of God for His people. But He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. Here in Luke 19, Jesus, remember, is about to enter Jerusalem. He'll be betrayed by Judas, passed over for Barabbas, and given up for crucifixion by the Jewish mob. The fact that any are saved from the wrath to come is only by the grace of God. So who are the citizens in this parable? The defiant citizens are all those who continue to reject the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want nothing to do with Jesus today, then you are His enemy and you are on the clear path to eternal destruction. If you chafe at the very idea of living under the eternal reign of Jesus, then you are headed for the slaughter. Yes, you and I may reject Jesus in this life. We can passively or even actively resist his rule, but know that a day of reckoning will come. If, if you are opposed to the person and work of Jesus, then you have no reason to anticipate or welcome his return. But please, 
please remember that the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In this day and in this time, God is still in the business of reconciling His enemies to Himself through the blood of Jesus. Bow the knee. Submit to the King. Taste and see that the Lord is good. At the beginning of the sermon, I shared the following quote from William Hendrickson. Jesus is history's watershed, its dividing ridge. Our relation to him is decisive for woe or weal, for bane or blessing. One of my favorite preachers, Richie Sessions, says it this way, there's no neutrality. You're either ready to crown him or kill him. As, as you sit wherever you are today, I, I want to ask you some really important questions. What, what do your thoughts and desires and actions say about your relationship to Jesus? Are you worshiping and serving Him as a powerful and generous and saving King? Or are you self-centered? a Christian in name only, and, and simply hoping for the best. Perhaps you're denying and rejecting the authority of Jesus. If you are f- trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ today, then, then I want to grant you an encouragement. Rest. Rest in His full acceptance of you, not based on your behavior, but upon his obedience. And as you rest, continue forward in the work that he has given you to do as one of his people. Today, if you are in fear of the king or find yourself hating the king, then again, By God's grace, repent and believe the gospel. If you don't know where you stand in relation to Jesus today, then I want you to do two things for me. First, search the Scriptures. And second, find a Christian friend who knows you well, a Christian friend that you trust. Ask your questions. Raise your doubts. And run to Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you. That as a king, he is fully committed to subduing us to himself. As a king, he is fully capable of ruling and defending us. 
And as a king, he is fully qualified to restrain and conquer all his and our enemies. Today, O oh God, may we as your people rejoice in the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. And may we live for him and for the good of his kingdom with great confidence and, yes, God, great joy. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.